Hi, I'm Dan Jones. And I'm Mia Lee, and we are the editors of Modern Love at The New York Times and co-hosts of the Modern Love podcast. We read love stories for a living. And by love stories, we mean essays written by real people about all forms of human connection. We're talking about everything from first dates to funerals, from sibling rivalries to new love at 85. On our show, we're going to bring those stories to life. We'll hear from the writers and also from the people who are written about. Relationships are the most important things in our lives. And the people that tell us their stories are just so brave, like way braver than I think I am most of the time. Yeah. They're so honest and so vulnerable. And listening to the stories, I feel like you absorb so much wisdom and you get a sense that you're not alone. You can follow Modern Love wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. We hope you'll join us. New episodes are out every Wednesday. From the New York Times, I'm Michael Barbaro. This is The Daily. Today. For the past week, the news cycle has been consumed by a back and forth between the president and the widow of a U.S. soldier killed in Niger. But lost in the controversy is what actually happened in Niger. And a Republican senator delivers an impassioned rebuke of the president and quits the 2018 election. It's Wednesday, October 25th. Thank you very much. I just want to say that we just spent uh, quite a bit of time inside with the Senate Majority Leader. On Monday of last week, after a joint appearance with Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, President Trump took questions from reporters in the White House Rose Garden. Why haven't we heard anything from you so far about the soldiers that were killed in Niger? And what do you have to say about that? I've written them personal letters. They been sent or they're going out tonight, but they were written during the weekend. The president didn't answer by addressing the circumstances surrounding the soldiers' deaths, but instead turned the question to whether he would reach out to the soldiers' families. It's the toughest, the toughest calls I have to make are the calls where uh, this happens. Soldiers are killed. Uh, It's a very difficult thing. Now it gets to a point where you know, you make four or five of them in one day is a very, very tough day. For me, that's by far the toughest. So the traditional way, if you look at uh, President Obama and other presidents, most of them uh, didn't make calls. A lot of them didn't make calls. I like to call when it's appropriate, when I think I'm able to do it. That kicked off more than a week of back and forth between President Trump, soldiers' families, members of Congress, the president's own chief of staff, and the media, but largely ignored what had been the original question of what happened in Niger. So, Helene Cooper, what did we know about what happened in Niger when President Trump was asked about it in the Rose Garden that day last week? Well, at the point last week that President Trump addressed this, it was already two weeks after the initial attack that happened on October 3rd. At that point, we knew that there were four American service members who had been killed. We had initially thought that there were only three, but Mm -hmm. then we found out later that Sergeant LaDavid Johnson, who had originally been listed as missing, uh, his remains were found. So why were people starting to ask questions about this incident in Niger, Helene, last week? 
because we haven't gotten a straight story yet about what happened. And we begin tonight with a story that wasn't a story until Donald Trump made it one. It's actually more than that by now. It's deeply disturbing to most folks because... President Trump got that question in the Rose Garden and then started talking about President Obama not calling family members and President Bush. Even in the face of mounting criticism, President Trump today defended his claim that other presidents, including President Obama, did not personally call the grieving families of fallen soldiers. And the story then took off in a completely different direction. President Trump is fueling new controversy over one of the most solemn duties of any president, speaking to families of troops killed in action. Trump forgets that what he signed up for is supposed to be empathizing with fallen heroes, families, knowing their name. Can't somebody put the name in front of this guy or what? The president actually undercuts a widow like five minutes after I can't believe that they are mistreating the widow of a fallen soldier. Now get this, President Trump is accused of politicizing the soldier's death. Are you kidding me? That would be Congresswoman Wilson who politicized it. As General Kelly pointed out, if you're able to make a sacred act like honoring American heroes all about yourself, you're an empty barrel. If you don't understand that reference, I'll put it a little more simply, as we say in the South, all hat, no cattle. And what's really striking is that I don't even believe the president was asked about condolence calls, but that's the question he chose to answer. That is the question that he chose to answer. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for the opportunity to speak to you about the recent events in Niger, which claims the lives of four Americans, Staff Sergeant Brian Black, Sergeant LaDavid Johnson, Staff Sergeant Jeremiah Johnson, and Staff Sergeant Dustin Wright. So then what happens on Monday? On Monday, finally, the Pentagon then makes a sort of belated effort to take ownership of this story because at this point, Defense Department officials felt that it was getting completely out of control. After speaking to Secretary Mattis this morning, I decided to address you because there's been a lot of speculation about the operation in Niger. And there's a perception that the Department of Defense has not been forthcoming. General Joseph Dunford, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, comes before reporters to say this is what we know and this is what we don't know. And I thought it'd be helpful for me to personally clarify to you what we know to date. He didn't tell us very much that was new, but he took pains to, for instance, tell reporters in his press conference, I'm going to call on every single one of you. I will answer every single question. This is not something that the Defense Department does uh, very often. They don't like doing it. And I, by the way, I'll, I'll, I'll stay to answer questions, so I'll, I'll get to you all. And what information does he provide about what happened in Niger? What's the story of how these soldiers were killed? Well, let me address the specific events in in, uh, Niger that took place early this month. According to General Dunford, on October 3rd, 12 American service members joined about 50 Nigerian troops for a routine patrol. From the capital city of Niamey to an area near the village of Tongo Tongo. This was a a patrol of an area that they had done 29 times before Hmm. with no problems. The assessment by our leaders on the ground at that time was that contact with the enemy was unlikely. They got up there. They were supposed to meet with a village elder. They spent the night there and met with the elder. And at some point were returning to base. And right after they were returning to base on October 4th, they came under fire. Approximately 50 enemy using small arms fire, rocket-propelled grenades, and technical vehicles. 
They took an hour before calling for help, and it was another hour before help arrived in the form of French Mirage fighters and French rescue. Three U.S. soldiers who were killed in action were evacuated on the evening of 4 October, and at that time, Sergeant David Johnson was still missing. This is what General Dunford told us. Mm -hmm. Now, what we know from our additional reporting, and this is from speaking with local officials on the ground, Nigerian officials, as well as people at the Department of Defense, is that at some point upon going to this village in Niger, the Nigerian uh, troops and the American service members gave chase to believed Islamic militants who were on motorcycles and Hmm. chased them over the Malian border. They got away, and then they then came back. They went to this village to speak with this village elder. Our reporting says that they believe that the elder who they spoke with stalled them for some time. Hmm. They don't know why, but it seems as if he was keeping them around for longer than they were expecting. They eventually then started on their way back to base, headed south, and were attacked at that point. Now, this is what we're hearing from officials on the ground and from people at the Pentagon, but that's not the official report yet. And it may be a while before we get the official version of of what exactly happened. And so Islamic militants are understood to be the ones who ambushed these U.S. servicemen from your reporting. Yes. And the suggestion being that the village elder who they met with may have been connected with those militants, maybe even supporting them. That is the suggestion, yes. Okay, well, that begs the question, why were the U.S. soldiers meeting with the village elder in the first place? We don't know the answer to that. Do we suppose that it's the kind of relationship building that U.S. military do all the time as they try to win over hearts and minds or understand the nature of an enemy in any place? It's absolutely the type of reporting that U.S. service members do all over the world. They do this in Afghanistan. They do this in Mm -hmm. Iraq. They do this in Syria. You cannot fight in a land without understanding the local people. This is where you go to get tips. This is how you find out information. And this sort of thing has happened before. I've spoken with service members in the past who were in Afghanistan and who talked about, you know, feeling like they were being stalled by village elders, you know, people who were enormously friendly in some posts. And then as soon as they started to leave, they came under a fire and think that people pointed their whereabouts out to either the Taliban or whoever. That's one of the risks you take. As horrible as it sounds, it goes with the territory. You never know when you're talking to somebody on the ground, whether you're talking to friend or foe. And What does Dunford tell us about the soldier who's been at the center of all this controversy with the condolence call from President Trump, LaDavid Johnson? Sergeant Johnson, according to General Dunford, went missing October 4th at the same time uh, during the ambush, at the same time that the three other service members Mm -hmm. were killed. Their bodies were evacuated for two days subsequently. Uh, Sergeant Johnson was not fined until October 6th. And from your own reporting, Helene, Do we know much about what happened to Sergeant Johnson? We don't. We know that he was either captured or hurt Mm -hmm. or possibly killed on October 4th. We don't know if he was taken prisoner and killed subsequently. We don't know if he was hurt and perhaps stumbled away. We don't know if he was killed initially and his body was dragged away. There's a lot that we don't know. For a period, Pentagon reporters had been told 
that there was an, a missing American. They didn't know at the time if he had been killed, and we were asked to not report on this because they were still trying to find out what happened, and they didn't want to give word in case he was hiding somewhere. And we found hmm. out on October 6th then when the military told us that his remains had been found. So I watched General Dunford, and he acknowledges that there's still a lot that the U.S. military doesn't know. The questions include, did the mission of U.S. forces change during the operation? Did our forces have adequate intelligence, equipment, and training? Was our pre-mission assessment of the threat in the area accurate? Did U.S. force, how did U.S. forces become separated during the engagement, specifically Sergeant Johnson? And why did it take time to find and recover Sergeant Johnson? Are those questions, Helene, that you're also interested in? We're all very interested in those questions. Uh, and, and a lot of this would be answered if we had a Pentagon investigation that told us the answers. And I think hmm. part of the reason for the confusion is because the Pentagon says they're hearing different accounts from the people on the ground. A lot of the people who were on the ground at the time, uh, remember, are either hurt or dead. But the people who are able to tell investigators what happened have apparently given differing mm. versions of what happened. So getting to the bottom of it can be a little bit tricky. And are there other questions that you're interested in that the general didn't mention? I'm very interested in exactly what these American service members were doing. Did they actually give chase to these believed Islamic State targets? And if so, was that something that they took on themselves or was it something that was ordered? And it's hard to imagine that a superior would give such orders without military equipment. They were very lightly armored uh, without giving them a little bit more backup. You don't go on that kind of a mission to target and capture or kill known terrorists without kidding up first. It's, you know, it's just you would have drones overhead. You would have air cover. You would have the sort of things that would allow you to be able to accomplish your mission. You wouldn't just be with, a, you know, a couple of semi-automatic guns and driving off in a Humvee. That's just not how you go after a known terror group. Are you suggesting that there's some basic understanding, maybe even a formal instruction in a place like this about not initiating military action. Oh, absolutely. It's not even an informal understanding. It's it's, it's the rules. They're rules of engagement. Uh, American troops abroad are always allowed to defend themselves, but they're not going to be sent. According hmm. to the Pentagon military rules, we don't send uh, young men and women off to do a very dangerous mission without first Got giving it. them what they need to survive it. So is that the reason you're interested in that yes. question? Because it sounds like one version of this, potentially, is that they were engaged in a mission that they shouldn't have been and might not have been equipped for. That's exactly what I find the most interesting thing about this. I was really struck to hear Dunford talk about the scale of U.S. troops in Niger. Maybe you were or maybe you weren't. The United States military has had forces in Niger off and on for more than 20 years. Today, approximately 800 service members in Niger work as part of an international effort. And that, that's the most in 20 years. What does that tell us about the level of threat from the groups in Niger like the Islamic State or Boko Haram? It's not just Niger. Uh, we have American troops in Nigeria. We have American troops in Chad. We have American troops in Mali, Somalia, Kenya. We have American troops. It's, what it tells us is that Africa, in many ways, is the next battleground hmm. in the fight against Islamic terror. 
for years now, we've had American service members working with African militaries, trying to build up these militaries that may not necessarily in the past have been that robust to get them to the point where they can tackle these groups on their own. And the American service members are there to help. And that's where you start getting into the question of what happened in Niger, because we're there training, advising, and assisting Mm. the Nigerian forces, but we're also accompanying them on patrols and on, on raids, as it turned out. And it sometimes can take something as horrible as what you saw happen in Niger to draw people's attention to the fact that we are fighting these wars in many, many, many places. It sounds like what you're saying is that this is a fairly common story of America's quiet engagement in a place we don't know about, except for the ambush. Except four people got killed, four Americans got killed. Oh, thank you for starting to help us understand this, Helene. I really appreciate it. Nice talking to you, Michael. We'll be right back. This fall, history is happening. September 14th, 2021. Hamilton, the Tony, Grammy, Olivier, and Pulitzer Prize-winning musical, returns to Broadway. Tickets are on sale now. Performances begin September 14th. Hamilton, back on Broadway at the Richard Rogers Theater. Learn more at hamiltonmusical.com. I rise today to address a matter that has been very much on my mind. On Tuesday afternoon, Republican Senator Jeff Flake of Arizona unexpectedly took the Senate floor and delivered a 17-minute speech to his colleagues. At a moment when it seems that our democracy is more defined by our discord and our dysfunction than by our own values and principles, uh, let me begin by noting a somewhat obvious point that these offices that we hold are not ours indefinitely. We're not here simply to mark time. Sustained incumbency is certainly not the point of seeking office. And there are times when we must risk our careers in favor of our principles. Now is such a time. It must also be said that I rise today with no small measure of regret. Regret because of the state of our disunion. Regret because of the disrepair and destructiveness of our politics. Regret because of the indecency of our discourse. Regret because of the coarseness of our leadership. Regret for the compromise of our moral authority. And by our, I mean all of our, complicity in this alarming and dangerous state of affairs. It is time for our complicity and our accommodation of the unacceptable to end. Without mentioning him by name, Flake took aim at the policies and behavior of President Trump, with whom he has publicly clashed for months. We must never regard as normal the regular and casual undermining of our democratic norms and ideals. We must never meekly accept the daily sundering of our country. The personal attacks, the threats against principles, freedoms and institution, the flagrant disregard for truth and decency, the reckless provocations, most often for the pettiest and most personal reasons, 
reasons having nothing whatsoever to do with the fortunes of the people that we have been elected to serve. The senator seemed to issue a direct challenge to his party. What happens if stability fails to assert itself in the face of chaos and instability? If decency fails to call out indecency? Were the shoe on the other foot? We Republicans, would we Republicans meekly accept such behavior on display from dominant Democrats? Of course we wouldn't, and we would be wrong if we did. Toward the end of his speech, Flake announced that he would not seek re-election in 2018. I will not be complicit or silent. I've decided that I would be better able to represent the people of Arizona and to better serve my country and my conscience by freeing myself of the political consideration that consumed far too much bandwidth and would cause me to compromise far too many principles. Moments after Flake finished, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell stood up and delivered his own remarks in response. We've just witnessed a speech from a very fine man, a man who uh, clearly brings high principles uh, to the office every day and does what he believes is in the best interest of Arizona and the country. And with that, I'll take your question. Later in the day at the White House, Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders took a question about the speech. President Trump's previously tweeted uh, that Jeff Flake is a very weak and ineffective senator. Uh, do you know if he has any uh, reaction uh, to Flake announcing that he won't seek re-election? Uh, I haven't spoken with him directly since uh, the announcement by Senator Flake, uh, but I think that um, based on previous statements, and certainly based on the lack of support that he has from the people of Arizona, it's probably a good move. That's it for The Daily. I'm Michael Barbaro. See you tomorrow. With no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, and an app that lets you bank anytime, anywhere, choosing Capital One is like the easiest decision in the history of decisions. That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC.